Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things you interact with every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on-site where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. Today, we're talking about the new trade routes that will keep our global supply chain running. When the COVID pandemic hit, it seemed like suddenly everyone was a supply chain expert, even if they'd never used the term before. Or perhaps you were on the receiving end of supply chain frustrations. Maybe that couch or home exercise bike you wanted wasn't available for another six months or even longer. Though warehouses are now back up to speed, transportation networks and infrastructure have to evolve to meet rising demand. My guests today are Dave Joint and Peter Stone from Brookfield's Infrastructure Group. Dave is a managing partner focused on investments, and Peter is a senior vice president focused on portfolio management. They'll discuss the need for supply chain resilience and transport assets like roads, rail, ports, and export terminals, and how today's business leaders are thinking about these investments. I kicked off the conversation by asking what supply chain resilience means and why it's important, starting with Dave. I think in the modern economy, people have become accustomed to getting the goods that they want, where they want them, when they want them. And the bar has been raised by companies like Amazon and others. You can get almost anything you can imagine delivered to your front door, sometimes even the same day. And I think what people learned during the pandemic is that that whole system is extremely fragile. You have a interconnected network of things that need to take place for that to be at your door at the right time. Starting all the way in Asia, you need to get the facility to produce the goods that you want. It needs to get packed, picked up, taken to a port. It needs to go from the port onto a ship. The ship needs to go to another port halfway around the world. From there, it's gonna go on rail or on a truck to a DC somewhere. DC means distribution center, a facility where products are stored before their next step in the transit journey. That DC is gonna feed a fulfillment center, and the fulfillment center is gonna put something into a delivery van, deliver it to your house or to the store. And within that, there are many single points of failure. So the reason people are talking about supply chain resilience right now is that for the first time in decades, people had a supply chain that wasn't getting faster and better, it actually got a lot worse. So Peter, let's build on that a bit. When companies looked at their supply chains and saw that they weren't getting better, that they were actually getting worse, there were a lot of weaknesses exposed. What were the lessons they learned from that? Well, there's been a lesson of diversification where it used to be straightforward and simple to just go, say, China and bring your cargo to Los Angeles and take care of it from there. 
But there's various factors that have made origins diversification more important. And then now we're also seeing destination diversification, where the port of choice is not the obvious, the biggest port, but using East Coast or Gulf ports as an alternative. And it can be a factor of production capacity, capability, tariffs, political, geopolitical, and convenience. And all of those factors have made it a multi-dimensional puzzle versus the simplicity of going from a traditional biggest port in the world, Shanghai, biggest port in North America, Los Angeles, and a very simplified supply chain. This sort of re-examination, how did it change the way companies thought about their supply chain and supply chain resilience? And how is that changing their view going forward? When Peter and I go to speak to the supply chain managers at Amazon, Walmart, Lowe's, or other large kind of retailers, three, four years ago, they would have told us their top priorities were number one, cost, number two, cost, number three, cost. When we have that exact same conversation today, we get a really different answer. Number one is security of supply. I need to know I can get my goods there. Number two, cost. Of course, that's still really important. And number three, sustainability. And that's really different. So the way that those firms are behaving is they're no longer trying to eke every last cent out of the supply chain. They're being very thoughtful about how do I make sure I have enough vessel capacity, enough terminal capacity, enough rail capacity? Do I have the right warehousing and inventory storage locations? That's a really big sea change. Peter, in terms of the global transport infrastructure and looking specifically at things like port capacity, terminal capacity, how are companies rethinking that or how are they adjusting in this post-pandemic world? Well, it's again coming back to diversification. So traditionally higher cost sourcing areas or more remote locations are being considered because there's a need to have a variety of locations to be able to source product. And it's the same at destination where now a port that was less important could become more important just by the virtue of its either geographic location or tax incentives or just that it was not considered in the past as an option. And everything is fair game now. Yeah, and I think adding on to what Peter's saying there, it probably used to be that companies were pretty comfortable outsourcing a lot of their overall supply chain and not taking a super active role. I think that's changed. And I think now it doesn't matter if you're a huge retailer or even a small retailer, you take a really big interest in understanding exactly how your goods are going to get from point A to point B. And you want to be absolutely certain that all those steps along the chain are going to work properly. Because for the first time, probably in many supply chain managers' careers, they experienced stockouts. That's like a textbook term that no one even knew what it meant before. You knew you were supposed to avoid it, but you didn't know why. But now, because of the pandemic, you actually felt what it was like when the shelves were bare, the warehouse was empty, and you didn't have the goods that you wanted. And that's going to be an absolutely watermarked experience across all supply managers' brain, at least for the next 10 years. There's been a lot of talk about sustainability, building more sustainability into systems. There's a lot of incentives out there to do that. It seems to me if we're talking about smaller ports being utilized more, that also requires investment. Talk a little bit about the incentives and how that affects the dynamics of this process. 
the supply chain is impactful on communities as well as on carbon emissions. And there's a strong desire for companies to reduce their exposure to climate change, but also to not be a contributor to climate change. I guess you could call it the Greta factor that no one wants her showing up at their store and saying, do you know where these products came from and how far and how much carbon was emitted? So what we're seeing is the cargo owners, the people who are driving the supply chain, demanding change. So we're seeing a flurry of ship orders now for methanol-fueled vessels, which is a zero emissions model. Further, and this is something that we're seeing directly as infrastructure investors, is converting ports to zero emissions and to remove diesel cargo handling equipment as quickly as possible and providing the fuels that are necessary to make those pieces of equipment work and perform in the same way as previous diesel-powered equipment. As far as policy, if you take California or Western Europe leading the charge on decarbonization, what it means is everything that's paid for and working today has to be replaced with a zero emissions. So that effectively the entire supply chain is getting rebuilt as quickly as possible. And today's supply chain is already antiquated because it's been now regulated into oblivion. So California is looking to have decarbonized the supply chain, particularly marine terminals, by 2030. And a lot of those terminals have not depreciated entirely their equipment, but they'll be forced to replace them. So there's quite a scramble to rework existing operations while they're under operations today to meet the challenge of the 2030 zero emissions requirement. So it means all new equipment, new technologies, additional conduit, more green fuels. All of those things have to be in place and up and running by 2030. And while it sounds like it's far away, in the world of entitlements, permitting, and technology development, and the fact that equipment takes at least two years from time of order to delivery, it's not a lot of time. And that's just one part of the supply chain that's being looked at from a regulatory perspective. Dave, I want to back you up for a minute because we're talking about the impact of the pandemic and how it affected supply chains. Can you run through that for us? Yeah, Lauren, if you were a supply chain manager in 2018, you would have counted on about 40 days for something to leave a factory in China and make it to your warehouse in Chicago. During the worst parts of the pandemic, A, some goods never made it there, but the ones that did were up averaging 80 days. And so that added 40 days to the supply chain, and that completely throws off the entire order cycle of what's happening because you're trying to order something for next quarter or the next season, and all of a sudden things are showing up very late. And this is where you read all the articles in the Wall Street Journal about, oh, there's so much inventory built up. Well, the inventory was like Halloween costumes that Target and Walmart are sitting around and no one wants to buy a Halloween costume in January. So they were sitting on that for a full year. Now, fortunately, Spider-Man is always going to be in demand, but you had to leave it in your warehouse for a year to be able to use it. And what about now? Are we pretty much back to normal or back to pre-pandemic levels? Or We are pretty much back to normal. From a fluidity perspective, I think you're finding that vessels aren't in queue outside Los Angeles and New York at the levels that we saw. The rail network has largely recovered. And part of that is because there's been a softness in demand. Consumers have justifiably switched their patterns from buying lots of things or doing home improvements to 
going on holidays with their friends and family now that the economy is back open again and that travel is more permissible and accessible. So there's been a shift towards services to be certain, and that has allowed the network to get broadly back to normal. But I think it's worth remembering that it wasn't just the pandemic effect that caused all the problems that we saw. The entire state of the transportation network and all the infrastructure associated with it was always going to hit a wall in terms of the capacity. It just happened three or four years early because there was that big flood of demand for goods relative to services during the middle of the pandemic that really caused a huge strain. And that problem maybe has subsided, but it hasn't gone away. There are still billions and billions and billions of dollars that need to get invested into our ports, into our rail network, into warehousing capacity, into last mile trucking fleets, into vessels to support the growth that's coming, even if it's not here right now. I want to move on to this issue of reshoring. Tell us what reshoring is and what it means for supply chains of these networks we've been talking about. I think people misuse the word reshoring and they say it as if everything is coming back to North America or to Western Europe. So what I think we do see is that high tech, strategically important goods those are being moved back to Western Europe or to North America or other locations. Examples of that would be Intel putting a semiconductor fabrication plant back in the United States, mm -hmm. something we're financing for them down in Arizona. An example would be Hyundai building a battery and EV plant down in Georgia, something that's going to be on our railroad down there. However, we don't think that low-end consumer goods or apparel or inputs to manufacturing are going to get reshored. It's unfathomable in my mind that all of the kids' toys would suddenly be manufactured in Ohio instead of somewhere in Asia. I do think, to something Peter said earlier, there's a move to decentralize that a little bit. So will people sole source all of their manufacturing production in China? I suspect not. We're already seeing lots of examples of companies starting to diversify into places like Southeast Asia and maybe into parts of India as well. The part that's forgotten is that components come from all over the world. So even if things were so-called nearshored in the U.S., for example, that really means assembled in the U.S. The components that go into that assembly come from everywhere. They can come from Europe, from Asia, etc. And some are domestic. And in the case of, take jeans, for example, cotton could be grown in Arizona or Texas. It's sent to China to be turned into fabric. It's sent to India to be dyed. It goes to Pakistan to be cut into peace goods. It's sent back to perhaps Vietnam for sewing. And buttons come from Korea. There's a huge trade that's not finished goods that goes on of raw materials and components. And even automobiles. Toyota manufacturing in Georgetown, Kentucky, a lot of the components, I think it's probably about 75% are Japanese produced components staged for assembly that actually go into the finished product. But for a single market to control the manufacture of every single component and the assembly and the distribution is a big, big task. And this is for the first time probably hitting the boardroom. If you think about three years ago, four years ago, Board members were not asking, please walk me through the supply chain of all of your components and where they come from. That just never came up. And now it's coming up on a very regular basis. 30% of global manufacturing comes from China. Not 100%, but 
but 30%. By the way, in 1990, that number was less than 5%. So it's come a long, long way. And I think a lot of firms are feeling that might be a level of concentration that's uncomfortable. And given the rolling lockdowns that were hitting the manufacturing sector, especially in China over the last three years, I think enough people are minded to say maybe we ought to have one or two plants in Vietnam, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, somewhere else, just to make sure that if a factory goes down, we at least can keep our inputs moving. You kind of answered my next question, which was, what is the role for China going forward? But it sounds like we'll see some diversification of sourcing, but not necessarily a reshoring in the sense that a lot of this manufacturing is going to come back to the U.S. I think it's hard to imagine that you can pick up and move a supply chain network and infrastructure network that was built over 30 years to get to the place where it is. And it's worth remembering that China didn't become the factor of the world just because it had low labor costs. That's certainly where it started, but it was actually the logistics capability and the infrastructure that made the whole system work. You had a great power network that was reliable. You had great roads, you had good railroads, you had great ports, you had great drainage systems, and all those things contributed to making the logistics extremely efficient and effective for a lot of people. For example, the Foxconn factory in Shenzhen, China, has about 250,000 employees in one facility. To replicate that in any country, let alone at the destination, that's asking quite a lot of resources, uh, capital and power it's just a big task to replicate that that's already been built and has been reliable for a number of years. But there's going to be a huge need for capital to build up some of that infrastructure elsewhere in the world. India is a great example. India certainly has the educational institutions, the language is helpful, it has the labor force, it has a lot of great characteristics that could help it. It probably needs a better power network but it also needs a great rail and road network. And if you could match those things, there's no reason India couldn't become a manufacturing powerhouse, but it just requires a lot of investment infrastructure. That actually leads into my next question, which is where do you guys see the investment opportunities in this whole trend that we've been discussing? I think the answer is there's going to need to be significant investment to both expand the infrastructure that is there today. In three or four more years, we're going to be right back in the same place with incredible congestion at all of our ports and throughout our rail network. So that's going to be a big investment. Number two is we are in a once-in-a-generation decarbonization effort. Transport is energy intensive. It accounts for anywhere between 15 and 25% of global emissions, depending on which source you read. And that's a big lift as well and will require significant capital. And then the last part is this decentralization of the supply chain, including some reshoring, and some moving to locations other than China, also requires significant investment, not only in infrastructure, but in real estate. I think these are all opportunities that we see that really put us on a multi-decade investment boom. And it's coming at a time when access to capital is more scarce than it was. You have higher interest rates than we've had previously. You have central banks that are tightening, corporations that are tightening their belt. And there needs to be people that will step in and help make some of these investments. At a high level, if you go back to Dave's example of the 40 days, 80 days model, most companies are probably willing to settle at 60 days, 
but a consistent 60 days. So we don't care where in the world or what it's going to take as long as it's the same cost, it's the same time frame, and it's the same quality. That's their objective and that's their measurement. And whether it, it comes from Madagascar or it comes from Korea or it's domestic, that is their parameter that they build a business around. If you look at our most recent announced investments into Triton International, which is the largest owner and lessor of shipping containers in the world, the benefits from a lot of the trends that we're talking about. As the supply chain decentralizes and lengthens, that means there's a need for even more containers. And as the world continues to grow and demand more goods, it benefits from those trends as well. And it's agnostic to which country the trade comes from and goes to, just acknowledges that goods are going to need to move from origin to destination. So it seems like the other issue here would be availability of land. And how do you expand this infrastructure if it's land constrained? What are some of the approaches that you can take there? Well, to start the green flow model, which is a push versus pull a container mode of operation. And what I mean by push and pull is traditionally container terminals around the world unload ships and then the people who have cargo on the ships come in and pick up their cargo and take it to where it needs to go. A push model is that when the containers come off the ship, they're then pushed out to the marketplace and not dwelling for a long time inside the facility. And normally, on average, you're looking at perhaps five days for a container, but from the time it's come off a ship till the time it's picked up and taken to a warehouse. And in a push model, if you could push it out in, say, two days, 48 hours after discharge, you're effectively doubling the capacity of your facility without any additional land or major capital investment. And that can all be done with technology, software technology, visibility, and pushing out information so that people are prepared. And when a ship takes two weeks to get across the ocean, you have plenty of time to make room in the warehouse and stage your operation to receive that container at the moment it's available. And a lot of companies have found that during the pandemic, a push model actually helps them speed their supply chain. On a smaller level, if you look at our rail terminals in the UK, before we used to have a very analog system for pickups and deliveries of containers. We've moved to a fully automated booking system in which everyone is given an exact slot in which they're supposed to arrive. The box is waiting. It goes directly from the very top of the stack right onto the truck and it drives right out. We used to have trucks that would be driving around our intermodal yard in Birmingham for 90 minutes, just looking for the box. Imagine you're trying to get something off your shelf. It's always the one at the bottom. So you got to get everything right. off the top before you get it from the bottom. Well, now we know to get it actually onto the top and it's ready to go and waiting. And now we're turning trucks in 20 minutes. When you start to do that, as Peter talked about, that creates a lot of excess capacity and allows you to densify the yards that you have and make up for the real estate that is, of course, very precious. Let me make sure I understand how this works. So it's really a question of through this digital process, using all the available space more efficiently. It's not a question of, well, the ports are pushing it out and then that's just going to cause problems at the end warehouse. This is all along the line. Everybody knows what's coming, can prepare for it. So we're actually using the existing space more effectively. Yeah, that's right, Lauren. And it's even better than that because this is what customers are looking for. They want to have visibility in their supply chain. When you order something on Amazon, let's just say you're going to get some shaving cream and you've run out. It's very scratchy on your face. And so you're really <laughs> wanting that shaving cream to arrive as quickly as possible. You would love to be able to look on your phone and know exactly where that shaving cream is. It reduces your anxiety. You're like, okay, great. It's three miles from my house. 
It'll be here at seven o'clock in the morning and then it arrives right at seven o'clock in the morning. And that's great. And then you're ready to shave. Expanding that example, this is the same thing on the entire supply chain. People want to know where their goods are, how they're moving through. And so when you do this, it not only helps you build infrastructure capacity, it's what the customers want and allows them to plan their supply chains accordingly. And at some level, the data integration and data visibility is the holy grail of supply chain efficiency. And we're really in the early stages of unlocking this. That's awesome. I don't worry about when my shaving cream arrives, obviously, but I get what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) I worry a lot more. I'm paranoid about it. (laughs) I'm curious how Brookfield looks at investing in the whole supply chain, beginning to end. Is there an example you could walk us through of what that looks like? Yeah. Off the top, I'd say we probably don't discriminate between any parts of the supply chain. We're always looking for the same core characteristics of stable, reliable cash flows providing essential services to the global economy. But to give you an example of what that means, we will own port terminals in Australia that will be moving both bulk and containerized goods. And then on the other side of that, we'll have container terminals in Europe where they're accepting some of those goods that are coming from those places. We put those boxes, one in six of those in the world are owned by Triton, which is our container logistics business. Those boxes will go onto our railroads. Our railroads will take those to DCs, which is a part of our global logistics real estate business, which they'll be in. And from there, they'll go into ultimately shops, sometimes owned by Brookfield, a large owner of retail real estate. So really, Brookfield sees the entire supply chain from the very beginning to the very end. And that allows us to have a really good understanding of what's going on, but also pick and choose our investments very carefully. And to add to that, Brookfield Renewable is active in powering the supply chain with hydrogen, electricity, all green energies that are necessary to keep this going. And I guess just adding on to that, (laughs) it's amazing how the network comes together, is that all these things are using more and more and more data that are powered by our data centers, our towers, and our fiber businesses around the world. To close out the conversation, I asked Peter and Dave what has surprised them most about working on supply chain issues through the pandemic. Most people didn't know of entire supply chain and what containers are, what containerization has meant to their personal lives and what globalization has brought and how products move around the world. And the pandemic really made that obvious to people who had no interest or knowledge of the movement of goods. The idea that port workers are now like first responders and superheroes was quite a revelation, especially in Southern California, where the port as an economic driver is responsible for more economic activity than the entire film and entertainment industry. But it's totally lost on the world that it's of that scale. I think I've been really surprised at how tight the labor force really was. I think we had this sort of naive perception that there was just a lot of people available to work in ports, work on the railroads, work in warehouses, work in last mile delivery. And I think we found very quickly that that labor market is aging and is very tight. And firms need to be extra vigilant in the way that they recruit and retain people. And also how they look to try to get some of the manual work out. Because otherwise, there can be no people to actually do the jobs. Automation can be very, very helpful. But in the end, there are certain jobs still that I think are going to require people for a long, long time. And I think we're going to have people driving trains, driving trucks, working cranes and ships for a very long time. And so whilst the era of robotics and automation is certainly upon us, I still think we have quite some time before we see a lot of those jobs turned over to the robots. 
That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Dave and Peter for sharing their perspectives. You can check out any of our other episodes about deglobalization wherever you listen. And stay tuned for more from Brookfield Perspectives.